Amen. And here is uh, Matthew 9. It's a very short uh, passage. There's not a lot going on. There's no miracles. There's no uh, demoniacs. It's Jesus. Jesus approaching a man with a really, really great name. The man's name is Matthew. And I can identify with this man in a lot of ways. And I hope by the end of this sermon that I would help you all identify, even though you might not share the name. Matthew 9, 9. Jesus passed on from there. He saw a man called Matthew sitting at the tax booth. And he said to him, follow me. And this is the miracle. If this doesn't excite you just as much as the paralytic walking, you're not getting it. He said, follow me. And he rose and followed him. That's amazing. And Jesus reclined at the table in the house. Behold, many tax collectors and sinners came and were reclining with Jesus and his disciples. And when the Pharisees saw this, they said to his disciples, Why does your teacher eat with tax collectors and sinners? But when he heard it, he said, Those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. And then he ends his conversation with them with a short reply. Go and learn what this means. I desire mercy and not sacrifice, for I have come not to call the righteous, but sinners. Sinners. From the very end of Jesus' masterful Sermon on the Mount, the people responded by saying, No one speaks with the kind of authority as he. Not like our scribes and Pharisees. That theme of Jesus having authority rides the rest of the chapters preceding. After he speaks with authority, Jesus moves on to immediately cleanse a man of leprosy. Because he has the authority to do that. A publican comes to him and says, My servant is lying paralyzed. And from a great distance away, Jesus speaks a word, and the man is healed because he has authority. He goes on to heal many. And then eventually there's a storm, tumultuous water on the boat, and everyone's afraid. And Jesus simply says, Be still. Because he has authority. Last week we read about two, two men oppressed by demons. And no one could pass by that way because of the power that they had. They were strong. And Jesus simply said, go. And they were gone. And then a paralytic man comes to him one more time. And instead of like the first paralyzed man, where Jesus simply heals him, what you're seeing in the mission of Jesus' Messiahship, what he's doing, is he's turning it in to show you why he's doing all these things. There's a pivotal point in that miracle where Jesus says, your sins are forgiven. I didn't say that to the first paralyzed man. But the second paralyzed man comes to him and he says, your sins are forgiven. 
and they are deeply offended by him. And then he says, which is easier to say? Your sins are forgiven or pick up your mat and walk. So that you might know the Son of Man has authority to forgive sins. Pick up your mat and walk. Jesus twisted it right there to say, I want you to understand why I'm doing all these things. It's not just for the miracles or the healing. All of these demonstrations of my authority in the physical realm are only predicated because they're coming from the absolute source of authority in the spiritual realm. That I am God. And the Father has given me an exact mission to do. And I will stay in this one city just long enough to heal that one last person and then I must move on. He's only doing what his Father tells him to do. Jesus is a man under authority. And so when that man comes to him and says, I'm a centurion, I'm a man under authority. I know what it's like to be under authority. If you were to say the word, it could happen. And Jesus marveled because no one had faith like him. Because that man understood that Jesus is operating under a mission. It's not as though he's just walking around doing as he pleases. He's doing exactly what the Father would have him do at the exact moment. There was not one sick person that he did not touch that he was not supposed to touch. And there was not one sick person that he did not walk by that he was not supposed to walk by. And so here is Jesus. After healing this paralytic man by also taking away his sin... He does this amazing thing where he simply walks up to Matthew, who is a tax collector, a publican. Jesus is on the shores of Galilee. He's in his main city, it says, Capernaum. And he comes up to this man in the tax collector's booth. And there is no doubt that Matthew knows who Jesus is. Most of all the miracles we've been reading have been happening around the vicinity of Galilee. And Jesus' main base of operation, where he slept and moved out of from time to time, was Capernaum. So everyone in Capernaum is aware of a miracle worker. And there are obviously, as we read, crowds following Jesus, always looking for a healing and a miracle. So when Jesus comes to Matthew... He needs no introduction. We're not told if he had previous conversation, but he knows who he is. And so he comes to Matthew simply and says, follow me. And immediately it says that Matthew rose and followed him. This is an encounter of the living Christ. Now Jesus is calling him to be one of his disciples, one of his twelve And so there's a little difference between what Jesus has done for Matthew in this verse to what he is and is always doing with all of us. He is calling us. Jesus' authority, this is apparently how he would call his disciples. It's remarkable because he would go throughout all these crowds and a lot of people really wouldn't be following him. They'd just be looking for a miracle. But he comes to a few choice people that were told of a few chapters ago in Matthew 4. Simon and Andrew. Brothers, who are fishermen. He comes to them and says, follow me, and I will make you fishers of men. And it says, immediately they left their nets, and they followed him. Those nets were their livelihood. They would have cost a massive salary of a fisherman's wages. That was the thing. That was him, that was like a, um, 
Someone who drives contracts to drive trucks, perhaps, and he has a massive truck that he himself paid for with thousands and thousands of dollars to go make money off his truck driving. For them to leave those nets away was not like a net like you and I would drop. That is, in the ancient world, a very valuable thing for him to walk away from. And they simply say, I only know how to survive by catching fish. And you want me to leave all of what I know and follow you. And they do. And then shortly, James and John, Jesus comes to them. They're in their boat with Zebedee, is the name of their father, mending their nets again. And he calls to them and he says, immediately they left their boat. And their father, who owns this fishing company, And they put it all away immediately for this man named Jesus. There is an authority behind his calling. That these stories are said this way for a purpose. They're demonstrating that if Jesus calls you, you come. If Jesus calls you, you come. There is a general call in which right now, if you are not a Christian, you are in some way hearing the gospel. And you can harden your heart against the reality of the simple gospel. That you are dead in your sin and transgressions. That unless you repent of all your sins and trust in the Lord Jesus Christ, you will not be saved. You will not know him or have life in his name. But if you trust in him, you will believe in him and have life in his name, as John says. Now people choose right now, I don't want that. That doesn't make sense to me. That is not desirous of me. And then there's some people... They hear that truth and the circumstances of their life lead to a pivotal moment at some point in which those same words, the syllables are not magic. It is not hocus pocus. Anyone can say those simple truths and there will be this reality in which someone says, yes, Jesus is my Lord. Whatever nets I have, whatever produce I have, whatever thing I have in this life, I let go of immediately. It is nothing in comparison to knowing and having the King of glory. He has revealed His glory to me in my mind's eye, in my soul, in my heart. He has impressed upon me in, in thoughts that I cannot ignore. That's the point. It essentially it would be a thought. The thought. God Weighing heavily upon your mind that you cannot ignore it. And that authority comes when Jesus approaches Matthew and says, Follow me. Imagine Jesus speaking this command to you. Have you heard him give you this command? Have you responded to this command? If you have genuinely heard this command, it should produce... Now granted, if you're grown in a Christian home, and you've known Jesus and walked with him most your whole life, then it's very gradual perhaps. But there's points in which your spiritual life, your real faith, has, has critical climaxes in which you feel the Holy Spirit pressing thoughts upon your mind. And those thoughts either make you uncomfortable or comfortable. And you choose in that moment, Jesus is Lord. Jesus is Lord. That's the moment. That's what's captured here in a very brief story between Matthew. 
Jesus is Lord. Imagine the hesitations. Have you had these experiences of fears or hesitations that you sense you should come to Christ, but you don't want to, and you're back and forth and back and forth and oscillating? That is, in, I don't know what that looks like in the spiritual reality. I don't understand. Like, but that really is it. That is the spiritual warfare that Jesus is actually combating. Paralytics and blindness and cancer is actually not it. These are the outgrowths of moral corruption which come from spiritual corruption. And that's why Jesus is here. It is uh, very different for us. We're not being called to be apostles. But every calling is similar in this way as far as its nature. John, 4, uh, John 6 says, No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him. That drawing, that drawing is so strong. Now, can you identify with Matthew's calling? Have you understood if anything I've said so far is like, this doesn't make any sense? Like, what do you mean these impressive thoughts that you can't avoid about the love and, and desire for Jesus, but working against him and wanting to live your own life. I've never, I've never experienced these kind of dilemmas. All right, well, that, that means none of this is even a reality yet for you. So if you can't identify with Matthew in his calling, the simple solution for the gospel is to move on to say, you need to identify with him another way. Now, I can obviously identify with Matthew. It's a really great name. It's a little too common uh, this time of uh, uh, human history, but hey, it's nice. It's a nice name. Um, here's really how we would identify with Matthew. He's a sinner. Okay? He's a sinner. If you can't identify with anything of this story of Jesus saying, follow me. Give me your life. And you haven't wrestled with that. There is a reason. It's because Matthew is a sinner. And maybe you're not. At least you don't think you are. And that might be why. If we identify as a sinner, we bring ourselves immediately into the crosshairs of Jesus Christ. We bring ourselves into what this is, the mission of the Messiah. This sermon series, the mission of the Messiah. What is his mission? What is he doing? He is out for sinners. And if you're not a sinner, you have never understood any of this. If you are a sinner, you step into this reality. Where the Father draws, draws. Can you be brought to the point where you say you are a sinner? There are more than one tax collectors in this story. Jesus is on the shores of Galilee. There are chief kings, not the Caesar, but various Herod Antipas. You read these guys in the Gospels. There are people who are given jurisdictions within the Roman Empire. And when you would cross these jurisdictions, what would be modern to our states of America, you are taxed. When you got off that boat 
on the northern shore of Galilee, you would get to stand in front of Matthew's table. And he would see what goods you are trading and you would be levied upon them. He would tax you. Here he is in his booth, his table. And there's no credit cards. There's lots of coins all around, bags of coins. And believe me, Matthew's not there by himself with all these coins. There's a team of tax collectors. There's lots of tax collectors here. There's lots of sinners. Lots of them. The reason tax collectors emphasize is because it is almost synonymous at the time with thief. The Roman system had no checks and balances. Anyone who had to pay or be born really well or do great acts of military service to get the status of getting up in the patriarchy enough to be given the job of being a publican. I don't know, we don't know who Matthew knew, but somebody within the large administration of the Roman Empire liked him or his family, and he was able to land this job. And it's a lot better than mending nets. But there were no checks and balances. So if you owed Rome $10, Matthew would charge you 20. And then he would keep 10. It was commonplace. It was expected that they did this. And you don't know how much they upcharge you because you don't know what the original charge was. They're the only ones that knew what they had to give Rome. And if they didn't give Rome what they wanted, their head would come off. So you knew whatever they're charging you, it definitely was the minimum so that they would save their own head. And then you know where they went and lived on which side of the city. And it was in a big palatial mansion. And you're like, well, apparently these taxes are doing really well for them. This was the business. This was the racket. There's lots of sinners where Jesus is at right now. But he came to Matthew. And he said, follow me. Jesus knows the heart. If you haven't heard Jesus say this to you, I mean not me saying you should follow Jesus because I'm a pastor and this is Sunday. If you have not heard him, that is the Father drawing, the Father drawing, laying heavily, burdening your mind until you would bow to Christ. If you have not been in that place, if that experience is foreign to you, then you're just not a sinner. That's your problem. You don't think you're a sinner. At least not to the extent that he would be having you part of his mission. That Jesus goes straight to Matthew and says, follow me. And whatever it is, we're not told any of the details. That Matthew, unlike all the others, in some way knows Jesus. In some way bothered by his present situation. Is not completely content to just stay there and keep padding his pockets with money. He walked away from the table. It's one thing for a fisherman to walk away from the net. It's another thing for some fishermen to walk away from their nets and the family company business. But it's even more remarkable that here Matthew would leave one of the most productive positions that anyone could find themselves in that type of area. He walks away from it all and leaves the other tax collectors to keep counting. We are all tax collectors. We are all sinners. The only problem is some of us know it and some of us don't. And of course we can all say to err is human and use humanistic um, platitudes. But the scriptures say sin is death and condemnation. So yes, no one would say they're perfect. But are you deserving of God's wrath? 
for all of your wrong. Well, no, not many people want to go down that road. If you go down that road, you start looking for a savior. And if you start looking for a savior, Jesus is going to find you. And he will save you. Not all those tax collectors might have been looking for a savior that day. But the one who was found him. Jesus, this is his mission. Isaiah 57. I dwell. This is, this is the heart of God. I dwell in a high and holy place. He is high. He is holy. He is above us. He is glorious. He is marvelous. And I also don't just dwell up there. I also dwell with him who is contrite and lowly in spirit. That is, if you are contrite, if you see yourself as a sinner, if you are lowly in spirit and actually see the reality of your situation, God comes to you. He just comes. That's where he dwells. He goes from the heights to there, down to here, and he passes everyone else up in between. He doesn't care about the middle ground where you're kind of okay, you got a few problems, but you're not a wretched sinner. Because you're definitely not up to the heights of glory in the highest of the heavens of heavens where God dwells. But he will go to the lowest of lows if that's the only way you get to heaven is going low. You go down to go up. The first will be last. The last will be first. Those who are contrite and lowly, those who see their sin, Jesus finds you right there. Matthew turns around his shoulder and there's Jesus saying, follow me. As if this conversation was already happening. Maybe in Matthew's mind this whole time. Follow me. That's, that's the end of a long dialogue of Jesus drawing you. And he says, follow me. This spiritual, it is a spiritual calling. And this is the heart of the matter. Our calling is similar. 1 Corinthians 1.9 God is faithful by whom you were called into the fellowship of his Son. So, this is not Matthew. This is not some story in, in the Gospels. This is Paul writing to every Christian in the Corinthian church. Every Christian, this is us. We are all called. And he says this, you were called to be with his son. 2 Timothy 1.9, he saved us and called us by a holy calling. Every Christian is called. Called not just in this outward sense, but I mean drawn. I mean grab by the scruff of the neck and brought into life and light. That is how he does it. Everything surrounding this story is just pure power and miracles. Healing, 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 demoniac. It's all going down. Jesus is just doing everything he wants. And the travesty would be to read this story and think this was any less miraculous. He pulled a tax collector away from money. That's remarkable. This effectual calling. It's like a phone call that you pick up. As a pastor, I have lots of phone calls. And we, I, I play phone tag. I, I'm so good at phone tag. Like, it's like my favorite sport. I love phone tag. And we do phone tag. I do phone tag all the time. And I didn't get Sam's permission, but I'm going to do it because I know Sam. Sam and I, we are the, Sam Severino and I, we are, like, we have the best phone tag games. I mean, they could last two weeks. It's awesome. <laughs> So he calls me, and I don't pick up, and then I call him, and he doesn't pick up, and then I leave a message, and he, we have like, I probably talked this, I mean, we have good conversations through our, our voicemails. I mean, they're really long. Uh, it's great. Hey, calling you, how are you? Um, 
and we don't know why one of us called, but eventually we're going to get to it. We just keep talking about how we're going to talk about something we don't know what we're talking about. That's not an effective call, right? Eventually, one of us picks up the phone. That is effective calling, right? Eventually, there is this call of God placed upon us by the Holy Spirit in which he toys with your mind and breaks you. He humbles you. He brings you to the place where you're vulnerable and then you hear the ring. And from here, this pulpit, you can hear me ringing all day long. But until God cuts through your heart, you will not pick up that phone. And then you pick it up and it's Jesus saying, nothing more than follow me. And you get up and walk away. And you follow him. It's an effective, effective call. The spiritual calling, it's spiritually discerned. Paul says it this way, 2 Corinthians 2. And we impart this in words not taught by human wisdom, but taught by the Spirit, interpreting spiritual truths to those who are spiritual. And then he says this, The natural person does not accept the things of the Spirit of God, for they are folly to him. And he is not able to understand them. They are spiritually discerned. That is the call of the gospel. Repent of your sins and believe upon the Lord of glory, Jesus Christ. The natural man, that is the man without the spirit. That command, that imperative sounds absolutely foolish. Why would I ever leave my tax collecting booth? This is a good situation for me. Why would I ever give it all away when I'm under the delusion that this is all mine? The reason is because it is a delusion. Your life is not yours. But naturally, the man apart from the Holy Spirit thinks this way all day long. Babies gain consciousness with this hard drive into their presuppositional thinking that this is my life, my body, my bottle. It's me, 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 me. As we said before, you could live according to the flesh or live according to the spirit. To live according to the flesh is nothing more than to be inward focused. And that is natural. This is the natural man. The person without the Spirit. But when the Holy Spirit comes and transforms the heart, that natural man becomes spiritual and the gospel becomes spiritually discerned. It is heard. The call comes. The ring is there. And the phone is picked up. So if we can identify with Matthew this way, if we can identify with Matthew... Not for the fact, of course, he's got a great name, but he is a sinner. He is a sinner. Then you're in a place to begin to identify with Matthew in his calling. That you can experience, understand, and many of you can testify to this exact truth of what I laid out, that this is how it has worked. God has broken you, and then he called you. Not because he wasn't calling you before. Not because, Timothy doesn't say, that God desires all men to be saved and come to a knowledge of the truth. Which he does. The problem is, men don't want to be saved and come to a knowledge of the truth. 
And so therefore, God breaks us so that he might make us. If we can identify with Matthew this way, we would know Jesus. Look at this verse. It's a beautiful verse. Verse 10. Jesus reclined at the table. Presumably in Matthew's house. And there are, and here's all his, here are all the buddies on the beach shore that Matthew left behind. Now there's many tax collectors and sinners all around. Do you see how evangelism works If this is the mission of Jesus, if this is how he operated, how should us, as New Life Presbyterian Church, how should we do evangelism? How should we actually reach people with the gospel? It's very simple. You love one person, you bring them to see the Lord Jesus Christ by God's grace, and God's power works that way, and what happens is immediately a social network of that person's life opens up. And that one person that comes to see Jesus has all this collateral with a network, a hue of people that you have no collateral with, that you have no rapport with. And then Matthew says, let's go have dinner at my house. And now Jesus is sitting there with all of these tax collectors and sinners. And the kingdom of God expands. This is, Jesus, this is how Jesus did it. So it would make sense. We should probably try That seems like a good idea. Like there's lots of ways to do church. This would be a good one, I think. And so here's Jesus sitting there, sitting there. Not sitting there, that is reclining there. Let me correct. The reality that he's reclining. This is not a casual conversation. This is not a nervous conversation. This is not Jesus just trying to weasel the gospel out there and say, you know, you really should repent of your sins and and trust in me. I got to go because I got Christian things to do. Jesus is comfortable. He is reclining. He is lingering. He is waiting. Do you think, do you think that if he's around a table of thieves and sinners, and the word sinners there, oftentimes used for those who are the ones morally compromised in society standards, we're all sinners, but we're all really clean sinners. But there's those sinners over there that are really bad. That's what that word is used for. It's used of a woman of the city in Luke 7. A woman of the city, a prostitute. She's a sinner. Well, she's a sinner. I'm not a sinner, but that prostitute's a sinner. These are the people Jesus loved to spend time with. These are the people. And do you think as he's spending, reclining there for a long evening dinner, that they might not say things untoward? That they might not actually, like, it, like if you ever could ever in all of our great holiness be offended by a sinner being a sinner, What about a sinless man being around a bunch of sinners? If Jesus didn't have a problem with that, I think we should reevaluate our consciences. Our conscience is so sensitive that you can't spend the hours with people. But see, Jesus has this ability. Jesus has this ability to not be influenced, but to influence. And this is the remarkable thing. He identifies. Why should he identify with them? Why should he identify with you and me? Well, the Pharisees ask that question pointedly. He says this. He pulls, the Pharisees pull some of the uh, disciples of Jesus aside. Doesn't talk to Jesus directly, but maybe some of the disciples on the outer edges. Pulls them aside and says, listen, we, we see what he's doing here. Why does your teacher eat with tax collectors and sinners? See, these two things don't mix. Because what they do realize, Jesus didn't go to the rabbinical school, uh, Rabbi University, 
uh, and it doesn't have all the, 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 the credentials and networks with the religious establishment, but they can't deny the fact that he has a tremendous amount of authority. He's doing things that no one else can do, and when he starts talking or calling people, he just draws crowds. So de facto, even though he's not a trained rabbi, he's a rabbi. And so he has all this power and authority that they obviously would lust after and want and are covetous or envious or jealous of his success in whatever this might mean by human standards. But they don't understand this. So this, this rabbi who is incredibly powerful and can do, just succeeds in so many wonderful things. Why would someone with all this authority and power associate with these people? That's the divide. They don't understand that. Why would Jesus do such a thing? It bothered them to see this dichotomy of acting so weird. And Jesus simply answers the question, why would he associate? Why would he associate with you and me? This is the end, and look at this. This is beautiful. Here is Jesus describing himself as a physician. It's those who are not well that need a physician. This physician metaphor is a physical metaphor. All He just opened up the door to interpreting everything he's been doing to this point. Everything Jesus has been doing has not been what physicians should be doing. Physicians are there to heal your body. And Jesus goes and says, as he's in the presence of sinners and tax collectors, not tuberculosis and cancer, I'm here as a physician. And it is, those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. Therefore, the sick metaphor matches with the sin reality. So sickness in this reality is a metaphor for sinfulness. Therefore, you backtrack that into everything Jesus has done at this point. All of his physical, physician-like healings are metaphors for the deeper problem of sin. It is sin, 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 and ten more times sin. Sin is the corruption that produces the curse, that produces the disease, that produces the death. Now, what physician, true physician, would treat cancer with Tylenol? If he is going to heal us, he is going to heal us of sin. And everybody wants his miracles and his blessings. And the reason he is there reclining with sinners like you and me is because he loves you. He loves you. He's doing it to heal them of their real disease they don't even know exists. This is the true physician of our souls, Jesus Christ. He would be a terrible doctor any other way. People are still, as we said last week in Mark 1, flocking to him for healings. They're beating down his door. And he says, it's time to leave. That's not what doctors do. I have a friend who does medical missions. Going to third world countries with full medical supplies and a grade A team of medical professionals. And by the time he is done with that trip, he is absolutely spent and exhausted. 
Because the need is so great and the resources are so low, putting glasses that aren't prescribed on people's eyes, giving them antibiotics and clothing and everything in between, diagnosing, CTs, all this stuff that they have no access to, and day after day, that's all they do before they get on a plane and leave. That's how you be a doctor. You give it all to that. Heal the disease. Heal the disease. Heal the disease. And then you find in John 5 that there are five roof colonnades of sick people. We're told a multitude of invalids in John 5. And Jesus passed over every one of them except for one. Jesus did not come here to be a doctor. He came here to heal of sin. He came here to heal of sin. It was told Joseph when Jesus was to be born of Mary. He will save his people from their sin. This physical metaphor is a physician metaphor. And the last thing he says is this. He explains to them why they can't understand. He goes and says, go and learn what this means. I desire mercy and not sacrifice. I desire mercy and not sacrifice. This is our mission. This is the Messiah's mission. This is how we should internalize it as a church. What are we doing here? Why are we like this? What are we to do next? Jesus says to us this morning, go and learn what this means. In everything we do here as a church, what does this proverb mean? I desire mercy and not sacrifice. That is... We are no different than the Pharisees and scribes. We could find ourselves in the same temptation. And theirs was this. To take what is good. God's law. God's word. Which is sacrifice. God prescribed. You you could literally respond to this proverb by saying this. Jesus says, I desire mercy and not sacrifice. He quotes from Hosea 6.6. And then you could flip over to Leviticus and be like, but you did subscribe sacrifice. Because he did. The point of the proverb is Jesus is saying... You don't understand. You know so much about God's Bible. But you have no idea what it's about. There is an order of importance. And the word there for mercy in the word of Hebrew, uh, Hosea 6.6 is hesed, which is loving kindness. The The love that does not go away. The love that stays to the very end. Long lasting, not failing excessive, poured out in abundance, absolutely nonsensical love, love that doesn't match up with any reality. It's just poured over and over and over and overflowing that it's just love straight through for every sin, for every transgression. Every time someone's ever wronged you, there is a storehouse of so much love and forgiveness that it rolls right over. It's not a tit for tat. It's not an accounting of rights and wrongs. It is so much love. The only kind of love that could ever save us. And Jesus is saying, you have no idea what all those sacrifices were even for. And they were here because the heart of it all, the whole heart of God's word and law is love. Love God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. And love people. Love people as yourself. And if we ever part from that as a church, we fall under the same condemnation. With our way we run the church, the way we organize things, the way we do stuff which we think is right or wrong. At the end of the day, if, if the motivation behind any of that deviates from this, that we are here to love sinners. We have stepped outside 
of his mission. We have removed ourselves from his purposes. So let's pray about that. Dear Father, Lord, we submit. No one would ever say, no one would ever say, follow me. In the way that you just said that, Jesus. Lord, we have no right to command someone else's life. But you do. You tell us to follow you with all of our lives. Because all of our lives are yours. It is your right to command us to follow you. Now, Father, we pray that we would have this second word on our lips. That we would say, like Paul said, follow me as I follow Christ. Follow me as I follow Christ. Lord, I pray before this church as the pastor that they would follow me only so far as I follow Christ. Lord, keep me in your path. Keep me in your wisdom. And Lord, we might say this to everyone in our life by the example of our life and our love for others. Follow me as I follow Jesus. Let me show you where this love came from. Lord, we pray you would do this with us day by day for your glory and your kingdom until you